My name is Jordan Rice. I am a pastor here at Renaissance. Uh, very glad to be with you guys today. Uh, years ago, I went to Jamaica on a honeymoon, and, I, and I, I learned two life lessons that I will never, ever, for as long as I live, forget. Number one, if you are water skiing, and if you're being dragged underwater, uh, and water is coming into your mouth and you're about to drown, let go of the rope. That's number one. Number two, and equally important, is that plants uh, only grow in certain regions. And I, and I learned that, there we go, look at that. This guy plays drums, he fixes music stands, he does it all. Right, so I, I learned that plants only grow in certain regions. And the mangoes in Jamaica are absolutely fantastic. Right, it's not like the, mag the mangoes you get from the, the bodega or the, the mangoes you get from the lady on 125th Street. The mangoes in Jamaica taste like Jesus himself is growing them in heaven and he's watering them with unicorn tears. <laughs> That's how good the mangoes are in Jamaica. And I was thinking, when I was down there, I was like, man, I'm not even a dude that really likes fruit, right? I'd, I'd, I'd normally uh, rather have a pack of Skittles than I would uh, some fresh strawberries. But when I was there, I fell in love with the fruit and I kept on thinking, why are these so good and the stuff we get in New York is not that good? Right? And I realized that it was because uh, the stuff that we get in New York is stuff that's brought over in trucks and they had to fly it over and they had to ship it over because mangoes don't grow in the Bronx. Right? Mangoes don't grow in Central Park. You cannot plant a mango tree anywhere. Right? So plants have certain regions that they have to grow in. And you can't, in the same way that a mango tree can't grow in the desert, like only cactuses can grow there, plants, uh, it doesn't matter how many times you plant seeds in a certain neighborhood, if the soil isn't right, if the climate isn't right for it, no matter how many times you plant seeds, no matter how much you water it, it will not grow. Right? And spiritually, it's the same. There are some aspects of Christian character that no matter, uh, no matter how many books you read, no matter how many times you pray, there are some things that have to be in a very specific climate in order for it to grow, right? So today we are talking about community. And, and one of the things that I want to say pretty early is that the only way that me and you will grow real Christian, Christ-like character is in community. The only way, right, in the same way that a mango tree cannot grow on 125th Street uh, because the climate will not produce it, you and I cannot grow to be real Christ followers. We cannot grow to love Jesus fully outside of community. Now, there, uh, there's this thing all throughout the New Testament. There's this one phrase that you see at the end of so many commands in Scripture uh, that if you're not looking for it, it's easy to just ignore it. Right? If you're not looking for it, it's easy to miss it. It's easy to blow past it. But once you see it once, you'll know. And it's impossible to read through it again. And that's this little phrase called one another. Right? And about 60 times in the New Testament, there's a command to do something to one another, to love one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, to encourage one another, to challenge and rebuke one another. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that you can't do one another things by yourself, right? You can't be in the mirror and correcting and encouraging yourself. These commands, almost 60 times from Jesus and his apostles, those who wrote the New Testament, they gave us commands that had to be followed out only in Scripture. Now, I know this firsthand, right? So I went to seminary years ago, and while I was in seminary, it was a time when I read more books about Jesus than I've ever read in my life. Right? So I read a ton of books about Jesus. I was writing papers. 
I was doing all of these things. I was praying a ton. But it came at a time in my life where I didn't really have any Christian community. And it was the driest uh, couple of years of my life. I wasn't actually growing to love Jesus. I wasn't growing to love people. I was just getting more head knowledge. See, information is not transformation. And what God wants to do in us is not just give us a whole bunch of stuff to know, but God wants to transform our hearts. And the only soil that that can grow in, the only climate that that can grow in is in community. Now, we've been looking at Acts 2 and uh, the first group of people that follow Jesus. And the first group of people that follow Jesus give us a lot of cues and a lot of clues on, on what community should look like. Uh, these people um, had a lot of things in common, but they had uh, really one big thing in common. See, they weren't bound together by their language, right? Some people smoke, spoke different languages. They weren't uh, bound together by tastes in food, right? Some people like fried chicken, and everybody likes fried chicken. That was a test. <laughs> right? So they weren't, it wasn't food, it wasn't culture. They wore different clothes, they spoke different languages, but they were bound together by one singular thing that made them a real community. They believed, right, that Jesus Christ actually physically was crucified and was raised from the dead. And around that topic, uh, they formed a community. And they didn't just kind of come together, uh, they actually did life together. Amber just read the scripture, Acts 2, 42 to 47. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Man, they, watch this part right here. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number uh, daily those who were being saved. Now, that's a, that's a very important word at the end of that, that passage, uh, those who are being saved. And, and I don't know what you guys think about when you hear the word saved, right? Uh, when you hear the word saved, you probably think of uh, somebody with a... a, a, a a doily on their head, and uh, actually, I'm going to stop that right there before I get some bad emails. All right, so when you think of the word saved, I'm sure you probably think about a lot of different things. You probably think about some religious people, right, who saved, and they're super saved, and there's some people who are barely saved, and all these different connotations come to our, our, our minds. But the Bible has a history uh, behind the word salvation. So, right, uh, no matter what we think about when we first hear the word uh, saved, there's, there's a history behind it. Right, so uh, throughout, the, throughout the scripture, you see that uh, God came and, and gave man some commands, and we broke those commands, and over and over and over again, we chose, right, to be the, the, the Lord of our own lives. We chose to, to choose our own paths, right? Adam and Eve, Eve chose to eat the fruit, even though God said, don't do it. And ever since then, uh, not just, we didn't just experience an unraveling of our relationship with God, but also an, unra an unraveling of our relationship with everybody else. Right? So ever since our relationship with God unraveled, our relationship with people unraveled. And that's why right now there's, there's wars. There's uh, the Indians and the Pakistanis are fighting. There's uh, the Gaza conflict. There's, there's beef in Ferguson. There's so much strife. There's so much toil all over the world. People are so divided. Now, salvation is very interesting here because essentially God didn't come to uh, make you a new person but to make us a new people. 
right? So you see God appear to Abraham thousands of years ago, and God tells Abraham, listen, your wife, she's kind of old, but guess what? We're going to get her pregs, and we're going to bless the entire world through this seed, right? That he didn't want to just bless Abraham, one specific dude, but he wanted to bless the entire world through him. See, God isn't interested in uh, making us a new person. He's interested in making us a new people. See, our, our, our walk with God might be personal, but it is never individual. Our walk with God, our walk with Jesus might be personal, but it is never uh, individual. So a couple centuries later, you see God appear to Moses, and God tells Moses to, to go to uh, Egypt and let my people go, right? And uh, in Exodus, you see God leading the people of Israel, the children of Israel, from captivity to freedom. And as soon as they hit the promised land, uh, you see the, uh, God goes to Moses at Mount Sinai and gives him the Ten Commandments. Now, after God had saved them, after God had brought them into covenant with him, he gives them a whole bunch of rules, not rules for themselves as a singular person, but rules for them as a community, right? Don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie, don't murder, don't do all these things, not because that's going to ruin you as a person, but that would ruin the type of community that God is trying to create. Later, you see Jesus hit the scene, and uh, he's preaching this message, the Sermon on the Mount, hashtag best sermon ever, right? So Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and as he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we have some pretty funky translations for how we look at it, and um, all throughout it, you see Jesus saying a couple of things that, you know, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and he gets to this part where he starts talking about, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Now, most of our English translations, translations put it as you, right? You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. But a much better translation, if you read it in the original language, uh, is actually, this is a second person uh, plural, right? So instead of Jesus saying, you are the salt of the world, Jesus is saying, y'all are the salt of the world. Y'all are the um, light of the, y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the uh, light of the world. Jesus is not interested in making you a new person per se. Uh, that is a means to an end because what God wants to do is not just make us a, a new person, but a new community. It, uh, Jesus was never interested in just uh, us becoming saved. Uh, God, throughout the entire redemptive history of Scripture, God was not trying to save individual people. Uh, our walks with God are personal, but they are never individual. So Jesus, at this, uh, tells people what forms a community, and it's not necessarily individual people, but it is the collective of people, all people under grace. At the end of history, salvation, you see what, what God says about what he's going to do. Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat with the, with the ox. They will neither harm nor destroy on my, all my holy mountain, says the Lord. All of the relationships are back. Uh, the future, absolute human community, absolute harmony between us and the created world. Every relationship, instead of being frayed and broken, is restored, and this is what God is doing. So the purpose of God's salvation is to create a new human community. And you might be thinking, like, well, okay, I, I thought God's salvation was intended so that me and God can be good, and that, and that is very true. But the, that's a means to an end. God wants us not necessarily just to, uh, to know him, but to, after we know him, to plunge ourselves deeply invested into a community of faith of all those who have been changed by grace. 
So when God gives us salvation, when he gives us forgiveness, when he gives us his grace, he calls us to deeply submit ourselves to community. And a lot of people, uh, we, we fall for the lie that you and I are a product of our own choices and you and I are a product of, of, of the books we read or something like that. But the, the older I get and the older you guys get, I'm sure you'll realize that the people that you hang around with will change who you are much more than a magazine article or a book that you read or a blog that you subscribe to. Those that you are around will shape you. In uh, 2 Corinthians, it says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. No matter how much you are, uh, your character is good, bad company will corrupt that. So God is worried about our community, and our walk with God is entirely a community project. But, so here's, here's some of the good news and some of the bad news. It is entirely possible for us to be in vicinity and not community. It is entirely possible for me and you to be around people, for me and you to be near to people, for me and you to talk to people, for me and you to text each other and not actually be in community. There's this guy, John Peck. Uh, he goes through the four stages of community and what it looks like. And the first stage is pseudo-community or fake community. The uh, second stage is chaos. The third stage is um, emptiness. And the fourth stage is real community. And in this first stage of pseudo-community, it's marked by a group of people uh, that come together and everybody is nice, everybody is agreeable, and everybody is pretending like there's no differences in the room. So the first stage of community, uh, and what people most misunderstand is that, oh man, everybody was so nice, everybody was so welcoming, and these are good things, but this is not real community. This is not real uh, community, this is fool's gold, this is only the first stage, and it has to go through some stuff before it actually gets to real community. And in this stage, everybody is minimizing their own differences. Everybody's trying to be agreeable. Everybody's trying not to buck against the system. Uh, everybody wants to just get along. But in reality, this is just pseudo community. It's fake because nobody's even really being themselves yet. Uh, it's not even, it's not half of what God has called us to. So the second stage, and this is where a lot of people leave. And this second stage is in chaos. And this is why a lot of people leave churches. This is why a lot of people leave community groups, because they realize that these people weren't what I thought they were, right? These people at this church, I thought they were, were cool, but everybody's just as fake as the people at the other church I went through down the street. Or everybody, you know, I can't believe that there are Democrats that call themselves Christians. I can't believe that there are Republicans that call themselves Christians. I can't believe there are people who call themselves Christians and watch Fox News. I can't believe there are people who call themselves Christians and watch MSNBC. And in this stage of chaos, in this stage of chaos, people start to try to convert each other to their beliefs, right? And instead of, being, instead of the main thing remaining as the main thing, uh, we try to convert people to, to understand things our way. And in this chaos stage uh, that people have to push through, uh, people's differences start to rise. And everybody gets a little bit uncomfortable and nobody wants to be around anymore because it wasn't like it was in the beginning when everybody was smiling and happy. And I don't know what this is, but this doesn't feel too good. Now, that's just the second stage. Now, uh, if you talk to sociologists, they will tell you that in true community, you have to go through this in order to have anything real. So the third stage is emptiness. And it sounds kind of depressing to say that word. But uh, emptiness is where people start to abandon their preconceived notions of what they thought things should be. And they finally start to accept things for the way they are, right? So nobody likes to be blindsided. Anybody that walks into a church or to a community group, uh, you have to walk into it with a certain perception of what you think it's gonna be. 
right? Everybody in their way here this morning probably thought about what church is going to be like, especially if this is your first time. I think there's going to be singing. I think there's going to be a message. I think there'll be an offering. There'll definitely be an offering, right? So everybody has these preconceived notions of what it is, and in a lot of these things, you're right. Uh, but we, we do this, and in community, uh, there has to hit a point where we have to empty ourselves of our preconceived notions and then actually engage each other, right? So at this point, I'm no longer expecting you to be this. I'm no longer trying to make you to be this, but I'm just going to remove all the preconceived notions, and the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And we're finally going to rally around this real point. And then and only then can we actually be community. So after the pseudo-community and after the chaos of the disagreements, after the fool's gold rubs off, and after we finally empty ourselves, then we can actually see community. And this is what we saw in Acts 2, that all the believers, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anybody in need. Now, last year alone, I, I've seen real community happen. And it didn't happen without disagreements. Uh, it didn't happen without uh, people getting angry at each other. It didn't happen without people being frustrated and some people leaving. But I saw it with my own two eyes. I saw strangers become family. I saw it with my own two eyes. I've seen people that have had job issues and struggling financially and people that didn't even have that much money going in their bank account, emptying themselves out to pour into their lives. If, we, if you push through the pseudo-community, if you push through the chaos, if you allow yourself to empty yourselves of the preconceived notions and to keep the main thing the main thing, we can actually experience real community. But I've seen it happen with my own two eyes, but even with that being said, it's not easy. Right? The biggest problem about this church is that you and I are in it. The biggest problem about this church is that you and I are a part of it. And it's not easy, uh, no matter how much we're talking about, how cool it is, and you have to push through the pseudo uh, community to get through this, and it sounds cool. We have four points on it and everything like that. But the reality is it's hard when you deal with people. When you deal with people, it's always easier to drift towards isolation, independence, and autonomy. It's always easier for you to pretend like everything is cool and to drift towards isolation, independence, and autonomy. But in the same way that a mango tree cannot grow in St. Nick Park, you cannot grow Christian, Christ-like character in isolation, in independence, and in autonomy. We are not the captains of our own lives, and we need the community around us to speak into our lives and to do these things. But bottom line, we drift in that direction. So where did, where did we get this drifting from? When I was about 10 years old, uh, my mother took me to the doctor's office because I was having these really bad headaches. And the first question the doctor asked my mother was, do you get migraines? And my mother said, yes, I get migraines. He says, well, there you have it. Jordan, you have migraines. And it was good to get a diagnosis, but um, I still didn't feel any better that day. Uh, but I, it was good to understand where they came from, right? And I, and I got migraines honestly, that my mother had migraines, so it makes sense that I have migraines. And I think with us, I think that it's easier for us, it's easiest for us to drift towards isolation, independence, and autonomy because we got it from our parents and their parents' parents, and it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Genesis 3. If you have your app, you can open that up. The cell phone reception in here is not the greatest, but... So in Genesis, I'm going to catch you guys up to speed. You guys heard of somebody named Adam and Eve? Yes? Good. 
right? So that's 50% of the, the test right there. So Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and God created them. And God says, listen, bro, you have one job. Don't eat that tree. Don't eat from that tree. That's it. You can do anything else. You can walk around. You can play soccer. You can play basketball. You can root for the Jets. But just do not eat from that tree. What do they do? They eat from the tree, right? So it's like if I say, don't think about purple elephants. What do you just think about? Purple elephants, right? So God gives them one task, one assignment. Do not eat from this tree, and they do it. And it says something really interesting after they both ate from the forbidden fruit. After they messed up, after they knew they sinned, it says in Genesis 3 and 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They knew that they were wrong, and they hid. They knew that they were wrong. They knew that they had messed up. They knew that they didn't have it all together, and their first reaction was to hide. In one moment, suddenly, Adam and Eve, after they disobeyed God, uh, they, had to, they felt like they had to completely control all the information about them. So that's what hiding is. Hiding is feeling the need to control the information that other people see about you. Hiding is feeling the need to, you can't be vulnerable. God forbid if people knew what you thought last week. God forbid if people knew what I thought last week. God forbid if it really came out how your marriage really was. God forbid if people found out how your friendship situations really are, that you can write on Facebook about how much fun you're having with your friends, and the entire time, all of you have your head downs on your phone, and nobody's even talking to each other. Yo, great time with, with the bro, man. Best time ever. <laughs> and deep down inside, you don't even like that person. Deep down inside, you guys aren't even talking about anything. We hide in plain sight. Dating, <laughs> dating is like buying a used car from a dude named Ernie, right? Like nobody trusts a dude named Ernie with a mustache from the 70s, and he's trying to sell you a, a 68 Chevelle with like an old carburetor, and he's like, oh man, this thing is in fantastic shape. That's what dating is like, right? We hide ourselves, our true selves, for months and months and sometimes years, and one day you wake up married to somebody who finally lets himself go, and you say, who is this person? Who is this stranger? If my wife would have known what my breath smelled like after a night of eating flaming hot Cheetos, I promise you she would not have said I do. So I hid that. I didn't eat flaming hot Cheetos after we got married, and now she's, now she's stuck. But our entire lives, I actually navigated around this thing that we hide. We sin, we hide. We mess up, we hide. We have insecurities, we hide. Let's go fix ourselves by ourselves, and then we'll come back and tell everybody how great we are, right? Isn't that the, the, the natural reaction we have? If that's your natural reaction as it is mine, you got it honestly. You got it from your parents, Adam and Eve. You got it from your parents. We have a nightmare. We have a nightmare about being exposed. We have a nightmare about people actually knowing the real us because God forbid they know the real us, they certainly wouldn't love us. Right? So uh, we have a, a, an inward desire, a natural desire to be known and to be loved, and we don't feel like that's possible, so we'll settle for just being loved and not being known. And that robs us from community. So we have a problem of nakedness. We have a problem of being vulnerable. We have a problem of people knowing us, and that robs real community. So what do we do? We hide and we blame. In uh, Genesis 3, after 
Um, they sinned and they messed up. They did three things. Uh, they sewed uh, garment fig leaves. So they took some fig leaves and they, and they put them around each other and they hid from each other and they hid from God. And then they started making excuses. God says, Adam, what happened? She made me do it. Eve, what happened? The devil made me do it. God forbid anybody says, I made me do it. Right? If you go to any kid that just hit somebody, hey, Johnny, why did you hit him? He hit me first, or he was messing with me. He took my toy. Go to any couple in crisis and say, hey, what happened to your marriage? She did this, or he did this, and he did this. Ask anybody what's wrong with the church. All these people are fake. It's much easier to deal with the enemy outside than the thing that is within us. We hide, and sometimes we're even good at hiding from ourselves. Because God forbid we actually face the things that we know about ourselves. God forbid we actually face the things that we fear about ourselves, that we fear about our capacities to do. But the good news, the good news is there is a divine solution for this that is different than you trying to hide or needing to cover up yourself with fig leaves. The good news is that the solution isn't to hide, it isn't to blame someone else, it's to trust Jesus that he thought you were worthy enough to die for and then uh, to, to not feel the need to cover yourself up but to trust Jesus to cover you. Right, so Genesis 3, verse 21, it says that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. I don't know if you guys caught that. I'm going to read that again. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Now, I don't know if you guys caught that, but instead of these flimsy man-made leaves that they had wrapped around them like Tarzan across their chest, God made them durable garments of skin. Instead of those little cheap leaves, he made them durable garments of skin. And me and you don't need to pretend like we've got it all together. Jesus is the Lamb of God that was slain for us, and we don't have to try to cover ourselves up with our own good works or our own fake image. We can trust in Jesus, the Lamb that was slain, to be the skin for us. So all throughout the Old Testament, you see God uh, having a system of redemption. And once a year, the priest would go into a place, and they would tie a rope around his leg just in case he passed out. And uh, they couldn't even go into this place, the Holy of Holies, and they would slaughter a lamb. And once a year, they would slaughter a, a spotless lamb, and it would cover the sins of the people for the entire year. Everything you did had been covered by the blood of the lamb. And what the gospel tells us, the gospel tells us that we are we're covered by what Jesus did for us on the cross. That we don't have to, we don't have to front, we don't have to uh, try to be great on our own. But as it says in Romans uh, 4 and 7, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now, we've defined the gospel as unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. And when we hide, when we pretend, you know what me and you are doing? We're denying the gospel. We're saying it's Jesus plus me being fantastic equals my salvation. When we hide, when we go towards isolation, when we go towards uh, uh, independence, what we're saying is, Jesus, I'm going to fix it over here, and then I'm going to come back and join your community once I, once I figured it all out so that nobody sees the real me, so that I don't see the real me. Now, in just a few moments, uh, we're going to take communion, but today we're doing something a little different. Uh, I don't know if you guys are paying attention to these bowls in front of you, uh, but in these bowls uh, is water. And on your way in, everybody should have gotten a piece of paper 
It's kind of thin, it's a filmy type of paper. And if you don't have any uh, paper, uh, please raise your hand and some greeters are gonna come and pass them around to you. I think we got some right here. See, this is why you guys gotta take the programs, right? I see you, Jared. He said, nah, I don't want the program. And now, now you need it, don't you? So, all right, so greeters are passing those around. And just keep your hands up until you, until you get one. And on this paper, so let me, let me t on this paper, um, I want you to write something. Don't show this to anybody. I want you to write something down that you've been hiding. I want you to write something down that you've been hiding from yourself, from other people, something that you're ashamed of. Uh, I, I want us to put our faith into a, into a tangible uh, practice. There's two in the middle. Right, I want us to, there's, there's also one in the back, right here. Would there be one? There's one in the back, right? And I want us to do something tangible with our faith right now. I want us to stop pretending for a second, and I want us to think about the things that we're hiding from, from ourselves, from others, the things that we feel like we, we can't tell anybody else. And today, before we take communion, uh, this, this paper dissolves. Don't worry, we tried it before. And you're gonna take your paper, and you're gonna dip it in the water bowl, and you're gonna shake it around, and you're gonna watch it disintegrate. And you're gonna watch the, the paper disappear, and with that, I want you to imagine your sins, your shortcomings disappearing. And right after that, I want you to, to take the bread. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus started this tradition called communion, and every, uh, he said, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Right? So my body was broken for you. My blood was poured out for you. And guess what? You don't have to pretend. You don't have to fake the funk. You can be you. You don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend. So right now, uh, during this next song, I want you guys to, to come up and to, and to finish writing down uh, the thing that you might be hiding. It could be one thing. It could be 20 things. And to come and to dip that in the bowl. And there's two stations in the front. Uh, you can come down on this side or on that side. And there's one station in the back. And, and please give the person that's in front of you some space so that you're not like looking over their shoulder like, I wonder what, I wonder what his son is. Right? So give people space so they can have time to process uh, what's going on in their lives. You and I don't need to, to cover ourselves with fig leaves. We don't need to cover ourselves with Facebook posts or makeup or gym memberships. We are fully loved, fully known, and fully embraced in Jesus. So right now during this next song, please come up and uh, take communion.